Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call Podcast. We kick off the year 2024 with a really great conversation with James Hampson, uh, owner, proprietor, founder of Hampson Horns, and uh, a very knowledgeable person and also a really cool guy. We had a really great conversation talking about his interesting path to becoming um, a horn player and switching his major from electrical engineering to horn performance. Um, Let me talk about his graduate studies in historical instrument performance and how he came to be uh, one of the the pretty recognizable names in the historical instrument and specifically uh, brass, historical brass instrument field. Before we get to today's episode, it's a very auspicious day. We have our first advertiser. If you are interested in advertising on the Horn Call podcast, please visit hornsociety.org. Today's episode is brought to you by Marcus Bonacases, selling comfort to musicians since 1990. Made in Brazil with 100% renewable energy. So without further delay, here's my conversation with James Hampson. Back to what we, I was just saying before the recording started. So yeah, if you could share with us just a little bit about uh, your path to where where you are right now, uh, running a successful business, being a very active performer on both modern and historical instruments and that's pretty rarefied air. So I think that would be really cool to share a little bit of, you know, the, the path that led you there. Sure, of course. Yeah. So kind of when I was in high school, I never wanted to be a musician. Um, I'd been playing horn since I was eight. I never had a private lesson. Um, I started piano when I was six in this very building I'm in right now, which oh, is wow. awesome. Uh, yeah. So I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, and then yeah, when I was going to college, I was really great at calculus and physics. And so it was actually my grandmother that was like, why don't you go into engineering? Um, I had no idea what engineering was, but I was really great at kind of the theoretical stuff behind it. Like I can sit down and do math in my head and all that stuff. Um, so I went to school at Rochester Institute of Technology um, in 2005, studying a five-year program in electrical engineering. Uh, I was a combined bachelor's master's. And while I was there, I was minoring in music because I had an interest in it, but not enough interest to kind of make it a career. And I'd been playing horn. I played horn in the school orchestra. Um, and then kind of the semester that was changed everything, I was taking a course on Mozart operas. Mm. And the the professor was teaching about the instruments of the time that Mozart wrote for. And then he got to the horn. He got to the natural horn. And like, it blew my mind. Like, I'm just like, I played the horn and like I've studied and stuff um, on my own. And then it's like, what's this thing without valves? Um, and it just fascinated me. It really did. I don't know why. It just fascinated me. And then I went home and I looked through my CD collections when we still had CDs. And I found a recording of the Mozart horn quintet. Hmm. played by Lowell Greer. And so I kind of put that on and I started listening and I started, wait, this isn't valved horn. This is something different. And I started listening to the intricacies of the natural horn. Um, and then from then on, I just like learned everything I could about Lowell Greer. Um, is that I, his history where he played, like everything he did is building. Um, and then I contacted him one day and as we say, that's history. That that's <laughs> where it all started. And but I was still doing engineering. And right. I woke up one morning. You know, I remember this clearly. It was a Monday morning, um, probably in January of 2007. Uh-huh. And 
something in me was just like, you're not going to class today. You need to think. <laughs> um, so I didn't go to class all day. I went to orchestra rehearsal that night, and they were doing the Mozart Symphony Concertant for violin and viola. Mm-hmm. And I just started playing the part, holding down one E flat horn. Right. And then I was like, I want to make this my career. Um, wow, what a what a light bulb moment. <laughs> It, it was str- it was strange. Like I don't I don't know. It was just something about learning about the natural horn. We're just like I need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I've been playing horn since I was eight. Never took it seriously. Just kind of played it in band as a kid. Um, and then I kind of started having my first private lessons that semester. Kind of getting prepared to transfer to music school. Okay, um, who did, who were you studying with at the time? I don't remember her name. Uh, <laughs> I know it's bad because uh, this is all before I went to music school. Um, oh, okay, so yeah, that's I right. I think you, you mentioned that in your article, but whoever yeah, she so is, all, we, yeah, she's yeah, awesome. All I remember she's is that she toured with some. I think she toured with Spam a lot. Um, oh my goodness! Okay, she lived in like the Cornell Ithaca type area. That's all I remember. Okay. Um, so if anyone knows her name, I would really love yeah, that. If you're out um, there and you're listening to this podcast, if you were if you were James Hampson's teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this would have been 2006, 2007 in Rochester, New York, teaching at RIT. Um, so it was a woman. I don't remember her name. I wish I did. But That's so interesting. Great. And I mean, I get that, you know, you were you were on this career path and it took you to Rochester Institute of Technology. But <laughs> Rochester is kind of also known for having a pretty darn good music scene. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so that's why the teacher there, his name is Michael Ruling, and he's still teaching at RIT, um, is that he's a Haydn scholar. Uh-huh. Um and it was amazing studying under him. And because of all this, he actually created special music classes for me and another student um, okay. to learn about music history. Um, and then when I transferred to music school, I went to SUNY Fredonia in uh-huh. Fredonia, New York. Um, I studied with Mark Guy, who just retired from his position. Uh-huh. Uh, and I double majored with music and mathematics. Okay, um, that makes sense. <laughs> I did that. The only reason I did that math degree is because I did so many math courses. I only needed three classes to get a bachelor's in math. Wow. So it didn't have any time on. Um, right. I decided just in case to have that backup if needed. Um, and then during my undergrad uh, in Chautauqua, New York, with the Chautauqua Institute, they have great there. They bring in great guests. And they happen to have the American Hunting Horn Society okay. having yearly meeting there and i had just purchased uh trump the shots and i'm just like okay it's right next to me i'm gonna go i knew nothing about it i walk in the door and the first person i see is lowell greer standing across the room (laughs) everyone surrounding him talking to him um and then i walk a few feet and next to me is a table of dozens of antique horns valved horns natural horns from dick martz Uh uh-huh yeah and he's in the um, Pennsylvania area, just on the other side of Trenton, New Jersey. Um, I've been to his house many times. He's been very kind to me throughout the years. And I just like, I walked into this, it's a kid in a candy shop for me. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. Like, I didn't know what any of those things were at that point either. Um, and then so I was talking to Dick and he's like, yeah, you should go introduce yourself to Lowell. So I walk across the room and I'm just like, I love <laughs> um, and he was so kind to me from the beginning um, and just throughout the whole my career and doing all this stuff we've been we were in contact um, throughout it I, when I moved to Ohio I lived an hour and a half from him so I spent a lot of time at his house um, before he was he in Toledo away. for a while wasn't he, he was in Toledo yeah he yeah. passed away in Toledo yeah, yeah. Um, so I was living in Cleveland for six years after my okay. doctorate okay so 
that's I spent a lot of time with Lowell and I play on a lot of his instruments still and just yeah, that's how we got started from this Mozart opera class and then learning about Lowell Greer. That's that's a pretty incredible story. So I have a couple of questions about when you were sort of pre uh, changing your major to music. How how did you keep that balance, like keeping your horn playing going and then, you know, what what sounded like a pretty rigorous uh, academic schedule with the math classes and all of that? Um, well, so when I was doing engineering, I, I was not a musician is that I was just playing the horn in the orchestra that was part of the school. Oh, I kind see. Of okay. a, and so I wasn't taking like big lessons and preparing excerpts and stuff. Just, I was playing for fun uh-huh. at that point. Yeah. Um, and as I got more into the horn and that's kind of when my horn rising was going like this on my math stuff was going like that. Um, <laughs> it got to a point where just like music was taking over for me. Um, right. That I got to a point where just like something inside of me was saying, I can't do math anymore. I need to go into music. Um, <laughs> and specifically the natural horn. Um, it's always been kind of my guiding light throughout this whole thing. Even with all the different horns that I play, the natural horn is still kind of me. That's kind of the, what my core is, is natural there's something pure about it that like, Hey, I don't have to oil the valves. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's putting you in touch with like a, you know, centuries old tradition, which I think is, is really cool. Oh, exactly. And I've, I've been doing a lot of research. Uh, John Manganaro is a great researcher in Germany doing this stuff. And we were talking yesterday about this and he was saying that even the Berlin Phil in 1914 was still playing natural horn for Mozart. And oh, 19- I didn't know that. That's pretty yeah, I didn't know that either. He just informed me of that, that there was this thing that like the single F horns that they're playing at the time mm-hmm. weren't great for playing just say horn in A. So like Beethoven, imagine Beethoven seven on a single F horn. Right. <laughs> so they still played natural horns for that because they played better. Great. Yeah. It was easier for them. Yeah. So it still continued into the 20th century. And then kind of World War One happened. And then it just kind of disappeared until Dennis Brain kind of started bringing it back a bit at the end of his career. Um, uh-huh. There's a great video from YouTube doing the Beethoven horns that on that. Right, right. And then Herman Bauman kind of started doing some stuff on it. And yeah, and then Herman Bauman ended. So it, it never necessarily went away. Mm-hmm. Um, it just kind of fizzled out kind of between the wars. And then it, Starting in the 50s, 60s, it started a regrowth. And especially in this country, Lowell Greer was the first champion of bringing back natural horn here. Um, There were a few players beforehand. Bob Sheldon um, was the curator at the Smithsonian. And I think he did recordings of the B minor mass and stuff. He was like an amateur horn player. Um, Right. Lowell Greer was just like at the top of his game in his recording career and his playing career. And it really took off in this country with him playing natural horn. Right. And then I, I've heard that at, at one point, you know, I, fr- I don't think he ever formalized it, but people could go like, you know, study how to build a natural horn with him or stay at his bed and breakfast or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. He invited me to do that. I just, when I was, just, I didn't have the time to do it. I would have loved, I wish I could have done that. Um, but I did for fortunate to spend enough time at his house talking about those things. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing. And, did you ever have any, you know, of course, Rochester's where, where Eastman is as well. Was there, you know, I imagine there were lots of other concerts and things going on so that you being a, an aspiring, you know, horn professional, you could, you know, have access to, to all kinds of stuff going on in the city. 
Yeah, I went to the RPO a lot when I was in Rochester. I mean, that that was kind of my first orchestral experience because as a kid, I, I'm from Long Island, New York, kind of our east of New York City, but I never really went to many concerts. I kind of went to Stony Brook University and saw their Nutcracker as a kid. Right. Um, but other than that, I really didn't see orchestra concerts. Mm -hmm. um, so the RPO was kind of my first venture into that. And of course, they're phenomenal musicians there. It's a good and, group. Yeah. You know, I think my first concert I heard there was Beethoven 7. And it's just like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> good introduction to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, Rochester was full of amazing music. That's pretty cool. And so where, where are you now? You said you're kind of, you're in the building where you were... Uh, uh, had yes. some history with right yeah yeah so last year um i moved back to my childhood home in patchogue new york okay. um people don't necessarily know that name but they know stony brook university so sure. stony brook 20 minutes north of us okay here. um so we're kind of dead center in long island um about an hour to the new york city to new york city west of us um and yeah, so this is Family Melody Center, um, is that, like I said, I started piano here when I was six, and now my I have six-year-old twins, and they're taking piano here, too. Oh, that's uh, so cool. Continuing that tradition, yeah. That's pretty neat, yeah. And so what, what prompted the move from, you were in Ohio, right? And that's where the business got started? Yes, yeah. So okay. the business got started in June of 2017. Okay. Uh, so to give an idea of this timeline, I finished my doctorate in May of 2017. Uh -huh. I started the business in June of 2017. And then my twins were born in August of 2017. Life is uh, like that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And kind of the reason for starting the business was how can we afford life with twins and being a uh, a musician just getting out of a doctorate. Um, and it, it occurred to me that I had already been getting in a lot of rare and antique instruments. I got them in for colleagues and friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, I was kind of looking at the horn market and that was at the time that Lowell Greer was kind of dropping on his shop. He wasn't really doing it anymore for health reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I kind of, at the beginning, I was feeling a niche in the market, is that at the beginning, it was all instruments I owned, mostly these rare and antique instruments. Um, and so I sold four of my personal instruments to start the business. Uh -huh. um, and then kind of growing the business, it really started with student double horns. Right. Um, yeah. Of American vintage, cons, kings, Reynolds, um, just getting them cheap on eBay, getting them fixed up by my repair tech, JC Sherman in Cleveland, and then just selling those. And I sold enough of those that that funded the rare and antique stuff that I like to do because doing those restorations is expensive. Right. Um, yeah. I have instruments with Richard Serafinoff that's like, it's going to be eight grand to restore the instrument. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and weirdly enough, the pandemic actually helped my business. Um, I, you can't say that for most people, but it actually helped my business because musicians and horn players got bored. Right, right. The people that still had jobs that still were getting paid were home, uh -huh. just doing recordings at home. And they're just like, I've been interested in natural horn. I have time now. Yep. Um, so I actually, because I funded all those projects, a lot of those things sold. Well, um, and you, you had made a lot of videos yourself, you know, playing on different kinds of instruments. So I think people knew you were, knew you were around and knew that you, you know, one, you, you knew what you were doing because you sounded great on the videos. And two, you know, you had all these really cool and unique instruments that you were knowledgeable about that you could share mm -hmm. information about. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, that, so from the very beginning, I made sure to be very active on social media mm-hmm. um, because most people have never heard this stuff before. Right. Is that people knew of Lowell Greer and what he did and they can hear his pristine recordings, but no one ever like heard anyone else like do it on like a big scale. So that was my goal. And then with the pandemic, I connected with a lot of people around the world doing virtual duets and virtual trios, Um, just getting all these people from different countries kind of connecting, collaborating, um, kind of on a scale that hasn't been seen before because we had to do it during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, those are those will be historical documents someday, that period between March of 2020 and, you know, whenever it started to kind of. Uh, you know, tail off a little bit when live performances came back. But there's that, you know, uh, swath of time that, you know, 100 years from now, somebody's going to be doing research on like musicology or something and like, look at this social document from (laughs) March 2020 or whatever. But no, I think I think it's really, really interesting and really cool. So. Um, so, okay. So you, you got, did you get your, ma- you said you got your master's at Rutgers studying with Doug Rutgers, Lundin. Yeah. What, what was that like? I, I, I know, I know some people who've been through that program. I just don't know too terribly much about the, the program there though. Yeah. So Rutgers is interesting is that they have a lot of the teachers that teach at Juilliard and in New York city that come down the Rutgers, so they have phenomenal faculty there. Um, and yeah, it's a, it was a wonderful university. And so kind of the reason I studied there was for Doug, uh-huh. um, at that American hunting horn workshop, Doug was also there. Oh, uh, okay. Because um, Doug got his doctorate from Lowell at CCM many, many years ago. I see. So Doug toured the world with Lowell playing natural horn, playing these early valved horns. Oh, wow. Um, and so I got to know Doug, and I guess this was 2009 at the end of my undergrad that I went to Rutgers and I had a lesson with Doug. Okay. And I walk into his office and waiting on the piano is a French piston horn. Oh, nice. And he's like, he picks it up and he's like, you're a math guy. You can figure this out. <laughs> and so it has the ascending third, which I do yep. a lot about my videos and stuff. And then I figure it out. And then he's like, okay, now play it as a natural horn. Uh-huh. And then he's like, now play it using both valves and the hand and the bell. Okay. Yeah. And- using 19th century techniques and i was able to kind of figure it out on the spot i've never done that before um and so our lesson was five hours long he took me out to at a local taco place um just lots of not not much playing but lots of talking and kind of sure he was teaching me a lot about the stuff um and that's why i studied with him for my master's just how knowledgeable he was and how amazing of a horn player he is i've heard Um, a couple recordings of him he's he's a major player he sounds really good yeah so he was trained as an operatic an opera singer Mm -hmm. as a heroic tenor Mm -hmm. so he puts his opera singing into his horn playing and his horn playing is so vocal that's pretty Um, cool just how he connects the notes and all this stuff is just like i fell in love with it um and at that american hunting horn workshop he played the haydn second horn concerto on trump the chasse Oh wow! And it was, it was the most beautiful horn playing I ever heard. And I'm just like, how is this possible? That he yeah, yeah. yeah I don't normally I don't normally associate the trump the shots with uh, refined necessarily. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't. That's the thing is that so he took he kind of brought it into the orchestral realm. That's pretty cool. Um, Trump the shots was in the hunting fields. Yeah. You could hear it for miles. That really heavy vibrato. <laughs> um, and so he played it in a way that I'm just like. Wow, that's cool. Um, so yeah, 
I studied with him for my master's at Rutgers. And then I went to Boston for my doctorate at Boston University. Uh-huh. Uh, and my first year, I studied with Rick Manal. Um, he was the top freelancer in Boston for 30 years. He subbed with the okay. Boston Symphony, principal of Boston Ballet. Um, and then he passed away after my first year, uh, sadly. Oh. Wow. Um, and then, obviously, there's not many people in the country that can teach that because I was getting a yeah. doctorate in historical performance. Um, so Doug would come up to Boston, and he taught me the rest of the time. Yeah. So I spent most of my time with my master's and doctorate with him. And so already by by your master's degree, you kind of knew like, okay, I'm I want to do a lot of playing on on the natural horn and that sort yes. of thing. Yeah. Okay. So at at Rutgers, my master's was in modern performance. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I would play with the orchestra and all those things and lots of chamber music. But during my lessons, it was pretty much all natural horn. Oh, cool. Um, and a lot of it was at that time I was a terrible horn player, honestly. <laughs> because like i said i never had a private lesson there were so many things i did wrong like um, and like i was an amazing high horn player like during my undergrad i played uh bach cantata 79 oh goodness g horn that just stays with high d's yeah and i played that no problem is the undergrad but i had zero low range because I never had a low embouchure. I never had a low setup. How um, interesting. So, and you started on horn. You didn't start on trumpet or anything? Yeah, like that. I started on horn in fourth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I've heard of that, but usually it's somebody that started on trumpet or something, and then they kind of... No, so, so just what happened was, I, I told this story with in the interview before, that in third grade, we kind of had our music test, and depending on your score, you could get your first, second, or third choice, uh-huh. and I got it on the test. So my first choice was French horn. I honestly don't know why. I must have seen something, some guest that came in that showed it. And my mom said I came home from school one day screaming I wanted to play the French horn. Um, <laughs> and fortunately, I do come from a very musical family. Mm-hmm. Um, not two generations, but three generations back. Um, my grand great-grandfather played under Tuscanini. Oh, my goodness. Um, violinist and a string player and a luthier. Um, so it's in the family. And my great, great, great grandma played for Queen Victoria. She was a concert pianist. So the music is in my family. And I grew up around a lot of music, especially with my grandparents. Yeah. Um, but like I was saying, like, I was a terrible word player. I really was. <laughs> and like, I, I remember my um first audition at Rutgers, kind of getting to the orchestra and doing a roca second horn. Uh-huh. And I could not get the first two notes, those E flats. Uh-huh. I couldn't yeah. do it. Um <laughs> just how my embouchure was, that was a terrible range for me. I couldn't <laughs> it, it gets even lower. <laughs> yeah. No, that yeah, that's that's the thing. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Um just there were so many problems with my embouchure. So I, I spent about four years mm-hmm. uh Fixing my embouchure from all the things I did wrong, not having a teacher looking at my face because I had that nice smile embouchure uh. and like my tongue was all over the place. And, um, so I, I spent a lot of time struggling um, on the horn. I think I think we all do at some point, you know, even the most gifted players. There's always a point at which, you know, the talent has to be, you know, supplemented with some kind of, you know, some kind of work, some kind of rigor. And I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was very much the same way. I wasn't that way with the high range, but certain things were like, oh yeah, I can just kind of do that. But then at some point you just hit, you hit a bit of a wall or a plateau or whatever. And like, okay, I'm going to have to dig in and kind of deal with this to to move on. Yeah. 
but uh, oh, that's that's really cool. Okay, so I have I have a question. You mentioned you mentioned family, and it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Normally, one associates like okay, pursuing a, a career in engineering is like you're basically guaranteed a job right out of school. It's probably going to be a pretty good paying job, especially the program I did. Yeah. <laughs> so were there was there concern voice, or did you feel like you had to kind of explain it to family, or did you know what what it, what was that like? If you don't mind me asking. So, uh, yeah, so normally there's contention among this. It's like, <laughs> I want to be an artist. I want to be a lawyer. Um, no, it's actually like I told my mom and she was like, finally. <laughs> Seriously, that's what it was, is that I, I was I was amazed um, that like I told her one day, like, I was like, I'm switching. I'm going to switch to music. And she's like, I was waiting for that. Okay. Um, so she knew. That's the thing. She knew. And so that's, I've been very fortunate with that. My mother's side of the family has been very supportive of what I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and moving back home, I'm right next to them now. They live 15, 20 minutes from me mm-hmm. now. Um, and one of the reasons moving back here is that being close to the family, my kids being close to their grandparents, great-grandparents. Right, um, right. So, yeah, so fortunately, that was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about that part of it. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And then, you know, I think that, that's good for students to hear because I think they probably encounter, you know, it, any parent would be concerned no matter what career path their, their, their children chose. But then when it's like, if you don't know much about the way the music world works, it's like, well, are you going to be able to feed yourself? You're going to be able to put, you know, clothes on your back and a roof over your head and that sort of thing. But it's good to hear stories like, you know, you could have, you could have done almost anything. You sound like you're, you know, wicked smart and (laughs) could have done anything you wanted to and you chose to do music and it's it's rewarded you and you know music takes you places it's taken you all over these it does yeah it's taken me all over the u.s to canada um i haven't said this yet but i'm actually planning a summer 2025 trip to europe Um, oh wow nice i'm gonna be doing stuff there um so yeah it's it's taken me all over the place places i never expected to go um and even like in my career i never thought about playing at carnegie hall or lincoln center it's just like why why would i play there you don't play natural horn there and then within the few months of moving to new york i played at both places and it's just like okay i didn't know that that's awesome Uh, yeah yeah and then so what was that transition like going? I know Boston has a pretty active early music scene with the Handel yeah. and Haydn Society and all of that kind of stuff. So what was your what was your your program like at, at Boston? Yeah, so the, the my doctorate at Boston University, it was a lot of jumping into everything that happened during the time period. So kind of learning about Bach, you learn about his family, you learn about his kids, you learn about the circumstances of how they lived, uh, just to kind of get a full picture of what music making was like during that time. Sure. Uh, and then you get into the instruments, and then you get into the period styles, and then you get into the temperaments that they didn't play at equal temperament. They played at all these different ones. They played at A466 or A460, A392, A whatever. Yeah. Um, that trying to navigate this whole thing that we don't have a lot of documentation about, especially for our instrument. Yeah. Um, there really wasn't anything written down about our instrument because we came from the hunting fields and it was an oral instrument. Um, and people like John Maganaro, Ulrich Kubner, Annika Scott have really dug into newspaper things, critics, all of these mm-hmm. things that try any mention of the yep. horn. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that time period is just really fascinating. And I love it because you're kind of free to do what you want in a way because 
we don't know. Um, right. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen some performances, especially if they're playing like a Baroque natural horn, do you point it in the air? Or do you point it to the side? Do you point it, you know, perpendicular with, or parallel with the ground? It's, it's, cause it's, I've done it's, 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 every pic- yeah, it's pictured in all those different ways. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It's, and the thing is that it, it's a different thing every single time you do that. Um, cause there's a lot more in a way, audience participation in that mm-hmm. is that, see what you're doing and they're more engaged because they're like oh i've never seen that before yeah, uh, yeah. i've done ones where i'm standing and just holding it like this and up in the air to the side <laughs> and then Bell, i've done a lot of stuff with um so yeah it's really fascinating and just learning about all these different things it's just fun i i think it's fun i just love doing it that's pretty awesome did you have to do like you know a lot of times for a, a doctoral degree you have to do some big project or a dissertation or something like that what what was kind of the culmination of your study there yeah so i really wanted to write a dissertation adding on to what paul austin did with his uh-huh. a modern guide to the natural horn because right. it's a phenomenal resource for people just starting the natural horn exactly, it's kind of yeah. the point it's a nice small book that you can kind of just get into the natural horn quickly mm-hmm. um so what I was going to do was the modern horn player's guide to the early valve horn. Oh yeah. To what Wagner, Schumann, um, Berlioz, all of these 19th century composers were doing. Cause it's really complicated. Yeah. And so I did so much studying of this stuff. I was writing a practical book for it. Um, and I was so excited to do it. And then I get to the grad, the, the committee and they kept denying it and they kept denying it. Interesting. Because they said it wasn't academic enough, okay. even though I was going into newspaper articles, I was doing all the things that you need to do, but I wasn't writing a big paper okay. is that I was writing something practical for the horn world because I wanted the horn world to have something like this. Imagine so, that something people would use. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, so it, it drove me crazy. And I'm just like, yeah. and this time was I was already living in Cleveland because I already finished all my coursework. Uh-huh. And once I finished my coursework, we moved to Cleveland and I was teaching natural horn in Oberlin and doing stuff at CIM and freelancing in the area. Okay. Um, and I was trying to get this paper, this book written, and they just would not do it. They just would not do it. Uh-huh. And so this was February of 2017 mm-hmm. that I wrote to the head of the program. And I'm just like, I need to graduate. My wife is pregnant with twins. I need to graduate. (laughs) And he was just like, so just so you know, we also have a recital track. Ah, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) So I could have spared all that problem. I just did the recital track. So that's what I ended up doing. I just needed to do one more recital. Right. Um, and it was a lecture recital that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went back to Boston in probably like March or April that year, and I did a lecture recital on Schumann and Wagner and kind of this transition period of writing for both valve horns and natural horns at the same time. Well, I think there um, could be a place for that guide. I mean, there's, you know, there's bound to be a place that would publish it. I, you know, the horn call would certainly be interested in sharing excerpts from it at some point. <laughs> well, the thing is like Annika Scott, she wrote one great book on the natural horn and she already has a bunch of others planned. So I'm excited to see what she has. Yeah. Um, Cause kind of for me is that I, I at that point, I really wanted to write it um, just with kind of everything I've done in my career so far. I'm at a point where it's just like, it's really hard for me to sit down and write something like that. Um, yeah. It, you'd have to take a, you'd have to take a sabbatical or a break or something to just have the time to, 
to sit down yeah. and do it. And I'm still the primary caregiver of my twins. So it, it's, it's hard. They're in first grade now, at least. But it's it, it's hard for me to do that as a father. Right. Like a very dedicated father to my kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. So when are you finding time to practice? It's <laughs> well, always like a quick... I said, they're in school. Yeah, you so can, while they're in I school, yeah. I time to practice now. I do have time to do that now. Um, it, it, it's been hard because, um, like I said, the first five years of their life, I was their primary caregiver. Yep. And I grew the business throughout that whenever they didn't nap, which was hard. Um, <laughs> but when they went to bed at night, that's when I did all my business. I did all my business between like 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. <laughs> business, talking to people. Um, and fortunately, with technology and social media nowadays, I just build up so many connections just sitting on my couch on my phone, right, <laughs> messaging yeah. people in Spain and Germany. Um, and, yeah, so that's how I grew this business through that time. And I practiced a lot with a practice mute. Uh, yeah. I have yeah. pictures of me when they're really small just laying on top of me playing a piston horn with a practice mute in. <laughs> that's pretty awesome, man. That's, that's funny. Yeah. I, when my son was little and you know, he didn't nap a whole lot either, but there were, there were many attempts made at napping. I would, we had like a walk-in closet and it was the only place in the house I could play and it wasn't audible in his room. So I would just go, you know, bury myself in that, <laughs> that walk-in closet. So. Yeah, but fortunately, I mean, we were before my kids were born. We we're kind of looking at kind of research and can can babies growing inside of a woman hear music? And they can. They can, actually, yeah. So I made sure right at the beginning to practice near my wife. That's funny. <laughs> I love that. Um, it was for for the kids, and my kids love music. That's um, good to hear. Yeah, um, the, their first grade music teacher sends me pictures of them at every music class, and they're just like they're at the front of the class every single time. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. Um, so you mentioned you were teaching uh, natural horn at Oberlin. Was that when uh, Roland Pandolfi was the yes. horn teacher there? Yeah, okay, that's cool. when Roland retired. Um, yeah, and then when Roland retired, they were looking for people to hire, and then Jeff Scott got that position. Uh-huh. Uh, phenomenal player. Um, but kind of at the same time is that the there were financial issues at Oberlin, so I kind of stopped teaching there, and then uh-huh. the pandemic happened. Right. Um, and so I stopped teaching there. I stopped teaching at CIM. And then obviously the pandemic, no one was gigging. Right. Um, so I just had the business and I wasn't playing anymore. Um, and that was part of the reasons moving to New York, too, is that a lot of my opportunities in Ohio just dissipated. Um, mm-hmm. so but I you I'd get opportunities in New York. Right. Well, yeah. And, and speaking of that, it sounds like you've been doing I mean, it's 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 all related to your business and that sort of thing. But it's you're you're consulting with like the met uh you're working with yeah, other yeah, that freelancers and things like that story too. yeah yeah so uh, so barb at the met um came out there with the brass witch and i was kind of amazed by it because i'm just like it's just the pencil holder it's what 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 is this fancy thing but i just started noticing different players in different countries like getting together because of it is that mm-hmm. it started this like, phenomenon that you have a brass switch i have one too and like Isn't that I, interesting I, oh, yeah and this is uh, for anybody that don't, doesn't know this like, is yeah barbara barbara yostline right yeah 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 and she's she's fourth in the mat yep fourth horn okay yeah yeah yep. and she's and uh, Inventor of the brass switch. <laughs> He's the inventor of the brass switch. And so we set up a meeting because I own a business and I just wanted to sell the brass switch. Um, and 
she had a different idea for that meeting because at the end of it, she asked if I'd come in and consult with the horn players. Um, and I honestly didn't even know she knew who I was um, because I've kind of always been on the fringe with what I do um, with playing natural horn and all that stuff. And I kind of saw how I was kind of going more into the mainstream of what horn players are doing mm-hmm. and people seeing what I do as beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a natural horn player, but I, I, you know, I've always been interested in history. I also teach music history at my university in addition to horn. So it's kind of, I, I'm got a foot on both sides of the fence there. So Mm -hmm. I don't really see a separation in it. It's just, you know, it's another cool thing that horn players can do. (laughs) Well, exactly. That's what it is. Like, I don't see natural horn as a different instrument. I just see a lineage. I see us yeah. in the hunting fields in every single step along the way. And then they're really cool steps because the 19th century, you always wonder why Debussy is writing different for the horn than Strauss. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with the instrument that they're playing. Yeah. Because the Absolutely. instrument became so different at that yeah. time period. Yeah. Um, and then so what, I what kind of consulting are you doing for the Met? Oh, sorry to. Just sorry to jump. No, no, it's, no, it's fine. Yeah. So, I mean, I was brought in as a mouthpiece consultant. Um, oh, okay. Uh, um, Lowell Greer passing away. There were over 250 mouthpieces there. Um, before Tom Greer passed away, he sent me his whole Moosewood collection to sell for him. Um, and I kind of de facto became an expert on mouthpieces because I had to learn so much getting those in. Okay. Um, I'm the type of person that I have to go 110% if I'm learning something. Um, <laughs> so I just I dove deep in that and I started contacting mouthpiece makers and I started contacting, especially Jonathan Ring in the San Francisco Symphony. We talk yeah. almost daily. Um, cause he has a huge, amazing collection. Um, and he spent a lot of time helping design mouthpieces too. Um, yeah, he's got one, uh, a Hauser Hauser has yeah. a, a model mm-hmm. that he does. Yeah. It was my main mouthpiece for many years. Um, until we just switched over to these new, uh, Alpine mouthpieces that I've been working with the Met on. Oh, okay. I've, I've got one too. Those are the ones, uh, Jacob Medlin is involved with, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I picked up one. I'm kind of, uh, I hate, well, I don't hate to admit it. I own it proudly. I'm a bit of an equipment junkie and <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my wife is very understanding of that habit. Uh, Mine too. <laughs> but, so God bless them. Uh, but yeah, I, I picked up a couple of those cause I was like, Hey, I, you know, Jacob knows what he's doing and he's mm-hmm. got some really amazing horns out there. But if he's, you know, working with, it was like a Swiss engineer or something for the mm-hmm. CNC. Yeah so, he, uh, yeah. so he's an American, actually. He's, his okay. name is Keith. Durand. Okay. Um, he moved to Switzerland two years ago because his wife got a job over there. Ah. Um, I first met him 10 years ago in Boston because okay. he had a job in Boston. Um, so I think that he remembered me from 10 years ago. Um, and he saw that I moved to New York and I was doing all these things with mouthpieces. And I kind of got involved in that way. Yeah. I, I really like the one I'm playing on. It's, I mean, it, uh, similar to others I've tried, but then there's some unique things like, oh, okay, I didn't expect it to be easy to do this on this mouthpiece because it doesn't appear to be that different than other similar models by other other makers. So mm-hmm. that's really cool. Okay, so we got to get into this then. Let's get into the weeds since this is a horn podcast. So sure. Okay, so what have you learned in your extensive study of mouthpieces? Are we all crazy for trying to find, are we, are we crazy for always looking for a better mouthpiece or we just stick one, stick with one and just not worry about it? Or is it, is there something to be said for switching equipment? <laughs> so I'm against the idea of one horn, one mouthpiece for an entire career. Because we change, our biology, our biology changes. Mm-hmm. Um, is that our lips, the muscles change, our muscular changes. Our, we can't hold the heavy horns anymore. Um, so it is a rabbit hole, and that's why people 
come to me because they're just like, they see how many things are available. Yep. And they're just like, I don't know how to start. Where do I um, even start? And that's how we all feel. And for me, I, it's funny. I have all these mouthpieces, all these horns and stuff. And I actually don't consider myself like an equipment junkie is that I'm not like switching between them saying, oh, I need to find this. This 103 has a better G, so I'm using that for that concept. <laughs> um, it's it's that I just – I play period horns when I can. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I get a chance to, I play these old horns um, because I – I have the ear for what the composer wanted to do. I can sit in the shoes of the players of the time and be like, okay, I have this music in front of me. I have this horn in front of me. What can I do with this instrument? Yeah. Um, and so I understand it. It's huge rabbit holes that you have to go down to. And I've spent the 10,000 plus hours on mouthpieces <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, and disclaimer, I'm not a repair tech. I'm not a builder. I don't do any of that stuff is that I have no interest in doing that stuff. I do not like working with my hands. <laughs> um, and that's why I hire people to do it for me. Right. Um, so like Miles O'Malley building my instruments, Richard Sarafinoff and all these different people that do mm-hmm. stuff for me um, because I see their expertise mm-hmm. and how their expertise can help the horn world and how their expertise can really grow in my mind what a great horn player can be with all the knowledge that you can get mm-hmm. with all of these different things. It's just, yeah. it's just another tool in the tool shed. And yeah. So what I say to people that with mouthpieces is when people contact me, I have a long list that I say, answer these questions for me. Okay. Um, I, I need to get to know you as an individual. I need mm-hmm. to know what equipment you've been on, why you change equipment, why you change mouthpieces, where you're sitting in your section, if you're a freelancer doing whatever, all these different factors, because one mouthpiece isn't going to fix everyone's problems. Right. Yep. And it was interesting working with Jacob and Keith because they're both engineers. Mm-hmm. Is that like, I have that background, so I understand where they're coming from. And Jacob was creating kind of this one amazing horn that could do everything. And they're hoping to make this one amazing mouthpiece that can pair with this one amazing horn. Yep. Um, and then I think the Southeast Horn Workshop last year was the first time they unleashed yep. them. Um, I think Dave Weiner was, uh, I think it was Dave that was uh, holding them. Um, and what they came up with was like a scattershot approach is that they were expecting like one mouthpiece to be the best one. Mm-hmm. And it was like a bunch of mouthpieces that did it. Yep. Um, and then me sitting down with the Met players and other players, it was the same thing is that the first horn player played a mouthpiece hated it went to the next loved it and then the second horn player loved the one that that one hated and they're both on meddling horns isn't that funny yeah and Uh, some of them are playing patterson's too aren't they yes patterson's they're on meddling's they're on they're on yeah isn't that interesting that's that i don't know when it started in new york that shift away from a certain kind of equipment to uh different kinds of equipment not to name names but everybody knows what we're talking about (laughs) so that, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it is fascinating for me from that perspective is that kind of coming into these players who did play on that equipment mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. It's and different. Yeah. It, it's interesting with the Met players because they switched equipment a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they were on those eight D's and then they went over to Schmid's. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then they went to one Oh threes and they went to Patterson's. Um, so they're kind of trying to, to find the sound that they want to find. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the reasons they kind of brought me in is just someone that just hears things to kind of differently mm-hmm. um, because of my specific unique training. Um, and now, I like what, to give this uh, example. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. And I was going to ask a follow-up question. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I like to give this example. I was sitting down with the first and second horns at the Met, and the second horn started to play her horn, and her first note, I'm just like, stop playing, there's a hole in your horn. Oh, wow. And she's just like, what? And just like, yeah, can you, can you hand me your horn? Uh-huh. So I, I take the main slide off, I blow through the lead pipe, and the water key is leaking. Ah. And this is a brand new horn from Jacob. And like, she just, she was like, I played two months of Rosencavalier thinking it was me. <laughs> um, and, and this is kind of where, where a lot of people struggle because they're looking at a thing of plumbing in front of them. Right. And just, just there's so many intricacies to the horn um, that people don't know what to do if there's a problem happening. And they oftentimes themselves. Well, yeah, um, yeah. Horn players are known for being hypercritical. Yeah, no, exactly. we're known for being very critical of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing is that that's what she was doing is that she yeah. just was like down on herself because I'm a great player. I'm at the Met. I'm doing this stuff. Why? Why is this happening? Right. And it was a hole in her horn from a brand new horn. And it wasn't yeah. her fault. It was Jacob's fault. Yeah. It was just the water keys were defective. Yeah. And after use a few times it just created leaks and no one would have known that Interesting. Um, but just just how my training is i've played on 150 year old horns that the rotors hold zero compression <laughs> <laughs> i know with the sound of a horn that has yeah. leaks and i just like noticed it right away on our first note um and it, it it's a good thing for horn players to realize that a lot of times it isn't you right. is that your rotor could have just the bumper just went out a little out of alignment, you're going to struggle now because there's air going where it shouldn't go. You're going to be playing a little flatter. Your notes aren't going to sound all just because like a millimeter. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so your horns worked on, get them aligned. Get them Um, cleaned. Yeah. Yeah. Don't drink Coca-Cola while you're playing um, all of these things. (laughs) Don't put pictures your horn. Um, that just, just all of these things, just proper taking care of an instrument, yeah, um, yeah, automatically make you a better player just because your instrument itself is functioning how it should. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, I mean, yes, the player matters, but equipment also does too. I mean, yeah. that's a, that's yeah, a, and pretty... that's like a best player can like pick up a crappy single F and play something amazing on it, even right. though the instrument is terrible, but they're working extra hard to do that. Right. It's about efficiency. <laughs> yeah. Already playing the hardest instrument on the planet. We don't need anything else hindering on. Yeah, I was I was going to ask. So when you're in one of those, aside from listening for uh, a leaky horn, what what do you listen for when you're evaluating? You know, okay, is this mouthpiece the right one for this person? Their horn, their style of playing, all of that stuff. Are, are there things that um, you know we ourselves could be training ourselves mm-hmm. to listen for in our own playing and in, in the playing of others? Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So yeah, one of the things that I do is that I make sure I hear the players on their equipment uh-huh. first. Is that so I can gauge what they're doing on their instrument with what they're doing with their mouthpiece, their horn, whatever, how they're I sitting see. and posture, all these things. Because um, I'm a teacher. Overall, mm-hmm. this I'm a teacher, so I'm still in teacher mode when I'm doing these things. Right. And then I kind of with what I'm doing with Jacob and the mouthpiece maker Keith is that they sent me in double blind. I didn't know what the mouthpieces were. And the horn players didn't know what the mouthpieces were because mm-hmm. uh, they didn't want any kind of preconceived notions of, oh, this is a Shilke. Oh, this is a Bach. Is this like they made them generic looking on po- in, on purpose with mountain right. names. So no right. one was just like, oh, yeah, this one's going to do that. It's just like no one knew. I didn't know. Yeah. yeah um, there's not a number associated with a certain, you know, characteristic or something. Yeah. 
Exactly. They just knew that they were getting a great mouthpiece from someone that worked with Jacob Medlin. That's all they knew. And then they're sitting down with me doing what I do. Um, and so, yeah, there's the, there's a lot of it kind of just sitting there watching their face, kind of how their embouchure worked with the different mouthpieces, just hearing different things that intervals on the mouthpiece to make sure the intervals are in the right place for them, um, how they get across the whole horn, their louds, their softs. Um, we test different excerpts. We test different articulations. Um, and then we do the same thing with the next mouthpiece and then go back to their original mouthpiece and then go back to this and kind of go back and forth. Um, because, yeah, mouthpiece testing, it's hard. Um, and it's why there's people that have hundreds of mouthpieces. And it's, that- it's hard on the face, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's why the screw rim is amazing that we can keep the same right. Yeah. Soles working. Um and yeah, so it, it there, there's a lot that goes into it. And like I said, before all these meetings, I always like have this big list of questions that they have to answer. Mm-hmm. Um because I need to know them as people. Right, um, right. Is that you can have the best horn and the best mouthpiece, but then it won't match with the person. Right. Because we're all different. We have all different backgrounds. Um, the biggest one for me is that Marshall Seeley came all the way out here to visit me for a consultation. Um, if people don't know Marshall Seeley, he's phenomenal freelancer. He was uh, principal horn of the Emmys and the Grammys this mm-hmm. past year. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've all heard him. Um, you might not know his name. But phenomenal horn player. He plays um, um, a prototype uh, vintage 8D. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. From the factory. Um, he got to pick one of the original ones. Um, and sounds like a million bucks. And oh my goodness, he's phenomenal. And he coming up, he's like, all of these youngins are switching over to guy raps. And uh-huh. I just can't make it work. And he's like, he bought, I think he said he bought a Rico Kuhn, a phenomenal instrument. Yep. And just for his style of playing from the 8D school, yep. he just yep. didn't make it work. And he was looking for advice from me on just like, how, how can I do that? How can I play those horns with them? And I was honest with him, just like, you're not going to be able to. Mm. That was my answer to him. And it, it kind of confirmed what he already thought mm-hmm. that like, he's tried it many times, different mouthpieces, all these things. And it's just, he's been playing the same way for 50 years plus yeah. um, that switching to that equipment. It is very different equipment. Right. Um, and yeah. I know why people have switched over to guy rap instruments. It's long and complicated if anyone wants to hear it. Um, but I, I see why people have done it. And these custom makers are making phenomenal instruments. Yeah. And the makers in Europe and Japan, they're making these phenomenal guy or knop rap instruments. Um, and we kind of saw the pendulum shift over to the guy side. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. It's like, Part of the cool thing about our instrument is that there are there is a place for all of those different styles, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like the first the first uh, album I fell in love with was John Chermonaro. It's like, I don't sound anything like that. And I never will. I can't. I mean, there's how many people can play that kind of an instrument and that, you know, a mouthpiece that's like like, a you know, like that big. <laughs> but but I, I just fell in love with that, that sound. And it's like, I still love it. But, you know, I don't necessarily think i need to go buy that kind of equipment and try to sound that way i think you know it's 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 so interesting when people get very like in a camp about this is the only way the horn should sound (laughs) it's just i don't i don't i don't understand it i mean i get like you got to sound a certain way if you want to get a job doing this sort of thing in this orchestra but aside from that yeah sure you should you should be able to appreciate great musicianship no matter what 
Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it is tough because, I mean, if you want a section, you want the section to be cohesive. Yep. And a way to yep. do that is have matching equipment. That does help. Yep. Um, it's not an end-all, though, is that there are players that, like, played in 8D with that bored-out C1 mouthpiece just getting huge, and they yep. ended their careers um, yep. because it's just so inefficient that it doesn't work for everyone. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I see why they did it. The New York Phil Sound with all those 8Ds, the Van Opera Sound, Hollywood, Cleveland. I was yep. in Cleveland. They're still on their 8Ds. That's an amazing sound. Yep. Uh, and, yeah, I'm, that's the thing, too, is that I'm not judgmental, too, is right. that when people come to me, I'm not judging them for the equipment they're playing. I'm not just like, oh, you're on an 8D. Oof. No, I'm not doing <laughs> that. just like, you're on an 8D. How can we make this work for yeah. you? Yeah, exactly. These things that work for you. Um, It's expensive. Like you're saying, mouthpieces, they're not that much. I know for students, it's a lot. But for professionals, yeah, you can buy a bunch of different mouthpieces and you can resell them and all that stuff. You can give them to students. Um, But buying horns and horns and horns, no one can actually do that. Um, And so I've been fortunate. I was talking about at the beginning of my business, it was all my instruments. Now it's about 90% consignments. I'm getting mostly assignments from people is that people saw what I was doing and they're just like, Oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, I'm constantly getting in a lot of consignment instruments. I want to ask, uh, and James, thanks so much for taking time to, to talk with me today. I want to, I want to ask kind of one, one final question going back to the natural horn thing. So if like myself, I, I played some natural horn in college. I did a, you know, some pieces on recitals and stuff, and we were very fortunate uh, to have, you know, a complete, you know, a bunch of different uh, horns by Rick Serafinoff. And yes. I've thought mm-hmm. about, okay, do we need to get one for my studio? Do I need to shell out the money and get one? But it's like the amount of time I would probably spend on it. I don't know that it would be worth it, but is there for someone who's trying to dip their toe into the natural horn world, what would be a good, a good starting place in terms of an instrument mouthpiece, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So fortunately we have 12 plus natural horns in front of us already. Mm-hmm. So you can hold down a valve and just figure out the harmonic series. Just figure out. Obviously, it's not going to work as well as a natural, an actual natural horn. Mm-hmm. But you can figure out the harmonic series, and then you could just use your ear to figure out where all the other notes are. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are methods out there that have oh, this position's one quarter and three quarter and half and all this stuff in the bell. But also, they say before that these fractions are here for reference. Use yep. your ear. <laughs> And as horn players, we're always using our ear. Our what, first century, what's what's yeah. three quarters stopped? What's seven eighths stopped? You know, like no, exactly. And I mean, once you get into like what I'm doing, my hand, my throat, all these things are doing really crazy stuff. Yeah, um, things I've picked up over the years. Um, so yeah, you have it in your thing. So hold down one E flat horn, play a Mozart horn concerto. Mm-hmm. You're gonna sound like crap. We all sound like crap at the beginning. That's <laughs> it's a very humbling instrument. Yeah. Uh, and then, fortunately, there's a lot more people around the country with natural horns now, with either valvectomy natural horns, which I love that term he coined from vasectomy, snipping yep. the valve off. Exactly. Um, yep. Is that we make a low-cost natural horn that has full crooks. You can play in every key. It's only $2,000 for that. Um, so, and then, But once you start really getting into it, mm-hmm. that's when you're going to need something like from Richard Sarafinov, some mm-hmm. stuff that works at these replicas um, of actual natural horns um, mm-hmm. that have the correct papers, have the correct bell throat. So you can actually really get into the tonal center right. of what a right. natural horn is, because it's very different. Um, and so, yeah, just you have it in front of you. You have that double horn in front of you. You have a single horn, whatever you have in front of you. You can start there. 
Um, and then like low cost options, a valvectomy, um, is that I really don't make any money on these things. Um, and I try to sell them as low as possible. And a lot of universities have purchased them. Mm-hmm. Um, I just sold two to university in Louisville, um, mm-hmm. not Louisville, Tennessee. Um, oh, I'm blanking right now, but I sell a lot of these things. Um, that, yeah, it's just a way to do it. That Yeah. And they're fun. They're just kind of fun to mess around on, you know, you can't hurt them. They're, you know, they're built like a tank. So <laughs> yes, the, yes, they are, especially the ones that came from Lowell. They had leprosy. <laughs> they played. Um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So th- there's definitely ways to do it with the equipment you already have. And what's great about the natural horn community is almost all of us will share our equipment is that you come over, you can play my natural horn. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are like that because they just want to share their love of it. Yeah. Um, so there's people all around the country with these instruments and a lot more universities are getting them too. Um, so just reach out to your local university, reach out to your local horn teacher, whatever they might have one. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. And so it sounds like you've got lots of exciting things coming up for you in the future. And uh, thanks again for speaking with me today. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>